Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 47, Marketing Mindfulness to the Youth. We continue our discussion with Insight teacher Diana Winston and explore the most promising ways that mindfulness practices are being broadcasted to youth. This is part two of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. to people like Noah Levine here on the show and Ethan Nickturn and Brad Warner, younger teachers who are kind of reshaping the message of the Buddha to appeal to certain subcultures and certain communities of youth. And I find that really fascinating. And I'm wondering if those kind of movements are, are what's needed in addition to just making the traditional centers more uh, friendly to youth. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that what I'm not so familiar with what Brad and Ethan are doing, but I know Noah's work well, and I think that he's definitely repackaging it in a way that appeals to younger people, and I think it's very exciting to see people drawn in. I mean, he's really pulling in groups of people who then identify as Dharma punks, and they're part of that community, and I don't think it's for everybody because some people are not so involved in the punk movement or, you know, there's a lot of people in the recovery movements that are there. And for some people that's Mm -hmm. comfortable, for some people it's not comfortable, you know. So I think that we're going to see more and more iterations of Buddhist forms that, how do I explain, but it's like you go into your Buddhist practice and you get, you do your work. And then when you come out, you, and if you become a teacher, you manifest it in whatever form you are, Mm -hmm. you know, so Noah is a punk and he's, he's in that world and he draws those groups of people and his Dharma has that flavoring and each of us are going to manifest in our own ways. And so I think as we see younger teachers coming out, they will be creating younger communities or communities that are manifestations of them. And you might say that, you know, for me for years, socially engaged Buddhism was really, really important. I was an Uh. activist before I ever got into Buddhism. And so a lot of the communities that I was involved with had to do with how do we bring social change and Buddhism together. And those were the people that I was drawing when I was teaching. I was teaching a lot of retreats on engaged Buddhism. Ultimately, the decision that I made to start doing the work here at UCLA was about how do we make change happen on a mass scale? Like I'm interested in cultural change. How does society change? And I think it changes by getting mindfulness into the culture, by having people, you know, years ago, people didn't know that you should use seatbelts. And now nobody would dream of driving around without a seatbelt and you also get a ticket, but whatever. But can mindfulness become part of the very fabric of the culture we live in? And that's, that's to me, the social change I'm most interested in right now. Yeah, I would never think of driving without mindfulness. <laughs> Actually, I, I would really consider driving without too much mindfulness. I've had some near accidents trying to be too mindful. <laughs> you just got to get the right object of mindfulness while you're driving. <laughs> there you go. That's interesting what you're saying. And it sounds like maybe another approach, which is more the one that UCLA, the program you're involved with, is taking is how do we strip some of the stuff and then repackage it in a way that we could actually infuse the entire culture with these basic practices of awareness and attention 
and that that actually might be the best way to get to not only youth, but people of all ages and all places in the culture. And it seems like that really is a fascinating goal. And you'd mentioned earlier that your your program was doing some stuff with youth education and actually introducing this kind of stuff into the school system. And I'm wondering if that actually might be the most effective way to introduce these kind of practices and what you're, what you guys are finding with that. It's been very successful in the places it's been introduced. It's been introduced in small ways around the country. For instance, a friend started a program up in Oakland where he goes into the schools, and these were in pretty hardcore schools where kids were having a lot of behavioral issues and mostly um, black and Latino schools, and they would go in and they would teach 15 minutes of mindfulness three days a week. Wow. And they did it for five weeks. And it's all anecdotal. There hasn't been research around it, but it's been like hugely successful in terms of the kids becoming more self-aware, cooperative, more able to articulate themselves and instead of fighting and so forth. So the early experience of it has mm-hmm. been very, very positive. And what's happening because there's such a crisis in our schools today is that people are looking, they're, we're looking for answers, right? And so mm-hmm. mindfulness is being seen as one of the things that can be helpful. And I think it's going to be seen more and more in that, especially as the research comes out. So you're right. In some ways, it's about bringing it, I mean, this is my view anyway, about bringing it in, just incorporating it. And so it's not something strange or you have to go to a Buddhist center. It's just like, oh, I learned to breathe when I was in fifth grade. You know, I learned to watch my breath. I mean, kids are told all the time, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But they're never taught how to pay attention. Right. This is what some of the meditation instructions can be. Now, just the flip side is we run into a bunch of issues around people feeling like we're bringing some kind of closeted Buddhism in and that you can't do this in a school. And there's, there, anyway, it's, mm-hmm. it's controversial. So sure. it's not, yeah. come on in, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so. kids shouldn't be allowed to breathe in school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so fascinating because I remember being back in school, uh, going to school in the Bible Belt, and it not being uncommon for there be teachers who were both government teachers and also religious figures in the in the community, and they definitely brought some of that into the teaching. So that's pretty explicit kind of mixing of religion and education, and and what you're describing to me sounds more like basic practices of just like PE, you go in and you learn how to, you learn how to run and to stretch and to do all these things. It's Stretching like, is yoga. That's uh, Hindu philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like. And maybe, it is. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, go ahead. It's just, I mean, in the same way, we could imagine 10, 15 years from now, maybe 20, that in the <laughs> same way kids take physical education class, they take mental education as well where they learn how to regulate their emotion. They learn how to pay attention. They learn how to work with stress. If you, when you put it in that language, it's not scary, religious, weird. It's just how, what can help me? Cause these kids, kids are so stressed out. Right. Totally. One thought I have or question, and I was talking with a couple of fellow classmates and practitioners about, you know, uh, research like mindfulness or, or Alan Wallace doing research on shamatha. And there was a question about, might this become part mentalizing part of the path in a sort of disconnected way where maybe some individuals and in this case youth are getting something like calming meditation or shamatha 
but then not getting the rest of the path or not getting that connected to that. And is there a danger in that or is there not a problem? Um, what are the issues around that? Yeah, well, when Diana, you were talking, I was thinking if, if I had been introduced to these kind of things growing up, there's probably would be a, have been an even greater likelihood that I would have mm. found my way into some sort of contemplative discipline mm. just having had that initial exposure. And I'm wondering if it's kind of a, a bait and switch type of thing in, in, in a sense, yeah, in a positive sense. How does that switch happen? That's, that would be the question. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe, I mean, it seems like even if you're teaching mindfulness completely stripped down, it would be hard if you got interested in it not to kind of find out a little bit about where it comes from. And mm. there's clearly lots of lots of information about mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition and even in other contemplative traditions. So I figured, mm. you know, if you got into it and you'd been following your breath growing up, you might start mm-hmm. looking into it and find out more. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if, if that would be true, but... My experience has been in teaching these secular classes, and it is, it's a really great question. It's, I think it's very, very important as these things go out into this society to be asking, like, really, what are you doing? Because I think the original question, I forgot who was asking, but it's like, what happens when you do these practices divorced from the whole spiritual, ethical, which no one said, but they are mm-hmm. divorced from the ethical context, which is so mm-hmm. key in Buddhism, right? right. right. And um, and they don't, they're not embedded in a philosophy. They're just, they become these tools, these stress reduction tools. Or um, what I've observed is some people go to the classes and use the techniques and never really think about it again. You know, they've just, they learn something, it's helpful to them, they use it in their lives. Mm-hmm. Some people really want more. A lot of people actually really want more. Once they've gone through a six week class, for instance, now they want to do more. And I can continue to offer classes where they refine their mindfulness and learn ways of incorporating it in their lives and and develop more of the sort of what we might call heart qualities like compassion, kindness, and I can keep doing it. But I think it's a really long-term question about what happens when mindfulness is divorced from its context because I don't I don't really have the answer. Like mm-hmm. some people then find their way into Buddhism. In fact, a lot of people do that, but some people find them, themselves into contemplative Christianity or, you know, Mm -hmm. Jewish meditation or whatever they're drawn to. But I think it's going to be an unfolding that we're going to discover because I don't know yet. What do you do? The way that I've resolved it is sort of drawing in like what you might call the perennial philosophy, Mm -hmm. you know, using all of the traditions and looking at kind of common sense and ancient wisdom and saying, look, this is how mindfulness can guide us here. But I don't know if that's the answer. I'm just experimenting. Mm. I mean, I guess the worst case scenario is we have a lot more well-adjusted people walking around. <laughs> right. <laughs> we could have some highly concentrated evil people, but oh I mean, yeah, you'll get those anyway. That's true. There's, I guess there's always the Darth Vader move. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> that's funny. That reminds me, the way I answer this question oftentimes, it's a, it's a question that comes up in yoga as well, that yoga has been turned into a form of aerobics glorified. Um, and how many people actually take it farther and really search for insight and truth into the nature of things. Um, but I, I consider it from a marketing perspective as the <laughs> spirit, spirituality product funnel where you have uh, the free class that <laughs> brings people into the basic techniques and devoid of all of any uh, um, like religious ethics. beliefs or anything or, or strict ethics and that sort of thing. And then people who are curious to go more do so. But I think it's overall a good thing to promote mindfulness practice or even just stretching in the form of yoga 
because more people are interested and they do benefit at these other levels. Not everybody wants to go that deep with um, their practice. So, it, and it's got to come from the inside. So, yeah, I would agree with that very much. So, mm. and I also, I mean, just thinking about this whole question of youth, it's like mindfulness and it wasn't in the culture in the way that it is now. It wasn't that way 10 years ago, mm. you know? So if you were a young person or even let's say 15, 10 years ago, and you were looking for something, it was, it was harder, but now everybody can take a yoga class. I mean, yeah, anybody can do yoga, right? And anybody, and now, oh, well, mindfulness. Not, what? It, it was in someone, there was like an article of the, in Fortune magazine about mindfulness and businesses. You know, there's articles constantly in Time magazine now. I mean, it's so out in the culture. So I think as a young person, there's much more accessibility to it. And if you have gone to a school where you learn to breathe and you realize this is something really beneficial, I'm going to study more, then I think it's much more available for them. Mm, that's a great point. Kind of looping back around to one of the original questions, how do youth get into Buddhism and, and maybe how I'm interested, especially with this, with this show and this podcast, how does technology impact the way that youth get into Buddhism? Because certainly I've always leaned towards the tech tech world. I've always been interested in, grew up on the internet, you know, when it, the internet mm-hmm. first launched. And when I'm interested in something, I, I just Google it. I find, put in Vipassana and see what pops up. And I'm wondering uh, with regards to how Buddhist teachers or Buddhist centers market themselves over the internet. Uh, and and this, this is kind of a, a somewhat of a criticism of, of the way that's being done now, at least in the insight tradition. And that's when I was at IMS a couple of years ago, uh, actually, just one year ago, they they just had switched to recording onto CDs from tapes, and they just started offering CDs only a couple <laughs> years before that. And, and at, at that oh. point, I don't even I I mean CDs are arcane to me. I mean I, I won't listen to it if it's not a, in a digital file format. And so and you know and, and they're just now starting to launch kind of Dharma podcasts, which are great. And I'm so glad that that kind of the, the teachings are getting out in that way. But uh, I've always had a hunger for for Buddhism, and I've I've always had a hunger for it over and through the medium that I'm most familiar with, and I'm I'm just just now starting to see them uh, see the these traditions start to take advantage of those technologies, uh, and I wonder if if that's been a real prohibitor in getting youth involved. You have to keep in mind that. The majority of the people at the Buddhist centers running the show and also the business, they're like, they're older. <laughs> they didn't grow up on the internet. True. You know, even yeah. I'm sort of like a bridge generation because it's kind of like half normal to me and half not. Right. You know, but you guys, it's the air you breathe. So that's why these centers are so behind. Like they don't understand the incredible use of the technology. Some centers are good, like Gil Fronsdale's Center Insight right. Meditation Community. I mean, they started podcasting their Dharma talks immediately. And they saw that, and part probably because they're in Silicon Valley, they saw the potential of Mm -hmm. what to do. But I think that Dharma centers, at least the ones I'm familiar with, they're going to get more and more in that realm because it's just, it's so easy at this point. And I agree. I think that's definitely going to affect uh, young people's participation. And I mean, we're doing, we're going to be piloting online classes and podcasts and blogs and blah, 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 because nice. that's, that's the thing to do, you know? Yeah. In many ways, the Goenka tradition, I mentioned this on the other podcast where we talked about this, the Goenka tradition is possible because of audio and video media. 
I mean, that's the whole, the whole course is run by video and audio tape, although it's still tape, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just curious. I'm, yeah. I'm, I sometimes wonder like what could happen if we have with the emerging technologies, like what kind of things could be possible for retreats or for Dharma mm. talks or yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan's mentioned to me before that his teacher, yeah. his teacher Namkai Norbu actually does his teachings uh, via webcast. Live, done- yeah. Live webcast. And um, wow. yeah, he's the only teacher that I know of the bank community that does it. And he reaches out to the, you know, students all across the world. But when he does stuff like that, anytime there's a retreat that's only happening, you know, across somewhere halfway across the United States or another country, I'm kind of irritated. I'm like, why do I have to go there <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to have benefit from it? I mean, there is benefit for live teachings, but I could benefit so much by having like live webcasts regularly. And he does that. Oh yeah, Diana, you have to you have to drop uh, drop some suggestions into the ears of the uh, the higher ups at Spirit Rock live webcasts, of Jack <laughs> yeah. and company. I absolutely will. I mean, <laughs> it, I think it'd be so beneficial. You know, one of our teachers, James Barris, does this year long class online on Awakening Joy. It's ah. called, and he he podcasts it. He has a live class and it's podcast, and then he gives people who are remote homework to do and buddies and. It's a terrific model. And he had in this last class, he had 700 people from all around the world participating in it. Nice. So if people can, you know, it's smart, it's, it makes sense. And I think it's just, there's like a slow transition for people of different generations into the understanding of the technology. Yeah. I guess that's the, the kind of curse of being an early adopter and so interested in this stuff is that it takes a while for the rest of, you know, for the rest of the population to kind of, get on the same page. I mean, rightly so. If they just started doing all this experimental stuff and none of it worked, that'd be, that'd be kind of sad, but (laughs) so it sounds like to me that there actually is a lot of stuff going on with the Dharma online and sounds like even more so now. Mm -hmm. So maybe my criticism's already (laughs) been answered, (laughs) but I'm still upset that they're, they're just on CDs now at IMS. (laughs) (laughs) But the Dharma seed, you can download. That's true. Right. That's so. absolutely true. Great. Well, I, I don't know if, there, if you guys have any other, if there's anything else that we want to touch on. What's different about starting serious practice earlier in life? One of the things that I've seen, well, so when I get teenagers coming to practice, they're coming for different reasons. Some of them are seekers, like you guys were pointing to in your lives. A lot of them are there because their parents made them. Mm. So... It often is this, and that's changed quite a bit. Initially, when I started teaching in the like mid-90s, it was more parents wanting their kids to be there. And then as the kids find out about it, there's more people coming on their own initiative. But you also you definitely see that at that age, this incredible searching and wanting answers and trying to make sense of things and looking for systems that work. And, you know, this is an aside, but when I first started teaching teens, I was really curious about what it would be like to teach ethical teachings. Like, would they just react and rebel? What do you mean the five precepts? Forget about that. I'm not Mm -hmm. into it. But what I found was they actually really, really appreciated it because there's so little guidance in our culture, you know, especially for people who come from non-religious backgrounds and families and even the ones that do having some guidelines about not killing, not stealing, not, um, you know, being wise with their sexuality has been tremendously helpful for young people. Mm -hmm. But 
the other thing I was going to say is that it's been really fun to work with that population because when they transition from being there to actually really liking it, and for instance, the teen retreats that we lead, they're just so wonderful. And if you guys are ever interested, come help out on them because they're just amazing to watch these young people over five days bond and go deeply into the practice. Buddhist and, Geeks field trip. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but what I see is teens actually get the practice faster than older people. And I even think younger people, like, I think the older you get, the more kind of crusty and calcified your, your kind of personality structures get. And you're, it's like you have more and more baggage. So when you start when you're 15 or 19 or 25, it's like you can really go deeply fast because of um, lack of expectation, lack of a lot of, you know, the same kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to say, but, but, but it's, so it's, it's different. It's different for younger people and it's very, it's very inspiring. Now the, the hazard is they get into it when they're young and then they get into something else and that's the end of it. So that, so I see a lot of people starting when they're young and then life changes and who knows what happens in their life. They go to college, they go to graduate school they, or whatever they do and that they don't stay with it necessarily. Mm. But the initial, but that's different for someone who finds it in their 20s. And I think that's such an amazing age to get connected to practice because it's right when we're forming identity and figuring out who we are in the world. And to have the Dharma as this, I mean, what, it, what, what it's been in my life, it's been like the underlying you know, guide to my entire life because I found it when I was 23 and I was, or 22, I was forming my personality. I was learning who I was and now, like, I live and breathe it because it's been actually, you know, half my life now. So mm -hmm. I think there's something very profound about starting when you're younger compared to when you're starting in your 40s and 50s. And, and mm -hmm. That's a good point. I'm wondering, uh, might another hazard be uh, starting young? Like you said, it, people can actually get into it very quickly and they don't have some of the same baggage. And so they can, they can actually develop deep insight very quickly. And I'm wondering if that actually could be a hazard in that certain phases of the practice are extremely destabilizing and they're extremely painful. And I'm wondering if there, there needs to be a certain level of maturity. Certainly I've battled with that myself, a certain level of maturity with entering some of these very dark recesses of mind and questioning identity at a real fundamental level. When, like you're saying, that's also a time that identity is being formed in the first place. So it's, it's interesting. I wonder if there's, there's some hazard there. I, I've seen it a little bit in some friends of mine and myself included. And I'm wondering if, if that, how, how to avoid that or if it's even should be avoided. Maybe it's okay. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I, I, that definitely happens. Sometimes I teach that age and, like the sense of self isn't strong enough to hold the sense of non-self. Mm, mm. And um, what I've seen is that you just have to, well, some people have to back off. I mean, right. that's just the truth of it. They just, it's not appropriate for them right now. And mm -hmm. others have to do the work to develop the self to hold the bigger picture. It just a little bit like my own story doing, I started when I was early, you know, in my early twenties, and spent the next 10 years basically 
going to meditation retreats and, you know, waitressing in order to make the money to go on my next meditation retreat. And I hadn't dealt with all sorts of issues that so many of my peers were dealing with. I hadn't Mm -hmm. dealt with really livelihood issues. I hadn't dealt with, I didn't have, I mean, I I was in relationships, but they weren't like really solid relationships. I Mm -hmm. wasn't, I hadn't dealt with my money issues. I had, I mean, there were so many things I didn't attend to because I was so immersed in the development of my spiritual life. Uh And so I had to do that afterwards. You know, at a certain point I went, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I need to figure this out. What's my job? What am I, who am I in the world? So it's a a little bit different than what you're asking because you're asking about the psychological questions. But, but I think this, this is what happens when you become so focused on your spiritual life to the um, neglect of everything else. And I see that again and again with young, serious Dharma practitioners, like beautiful, brilliant practices, and maybe even done lots of psychotherapy and things on themselves, but don't have meaningful work or, you know, have never been in a successful relationship or, you know, any things like that. So that's a hazard. On the other hand, many people have not had a successful relationship or meaningful work, no matter what their age. Well, that's <laughs> <a trick. laughs> yeah, but yeah, that that's really interesting, and I I think I've actually what I was saying earlier is that I kind of put off the practice for a few years, and I think because what I was trying to do is actually develop that solid sense of self and get some of the just life stuff handled, grow up, become an adult, which I'm you know maybe I'll be done with in about twenty thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the the whole idea of of intensive pursuit of the spiritual path creating a kind of uneven development in oneself and and how that can actually be confusing especially if now here's a question especially if those if those people go on to become teachers and still don't deal with some of the the fundamentals Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously there's teacher training programs like you said that i'm sure work to not only filter that kind of thing out because that would potentially be really hazardous for students but also to help people continue to grow in yes. all these different ways. Yes. Mm. One of the explicit pieces of the teacher training program we're doing at Spirit Rock is for the young people are being sort of guided in life issues areas, you know, because that's exactly right. We don't want someone who's, you know, 45 and a brilliant teacher, but, you know, can't remember their zip code or something. You know, it's it's like there's got to be, we see the development of teachers as being very like multiple coming from multiple directions that it's, it's your spiritual, but it's also your emotional and your social and your relational and your, you know, all of those pieces. So, yeah. And that's nice. And the young, the younger teachers, they love it actually, because they feel like they're really being supported to be in the world and have a maturation as well as to be able to teach and, offer dharma and what you also see just as a side point is a lot of our teachers started teaching when they were 25 and 30 you know Mm -hmm. a lot of like sharon salzberg was like 22 when she started teaching for instance right many many teachers have this story and that's also why you see a lot of ethical breaches because people haven't developed in ways that they need to develop as right right makes sense cool so are there any other final points that any, anyone wants to make or questions that, that are unresolved? Got it. That's a no. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Diana, for being with us and Duff for being with us 
as well. Thank you. And Ryan and myself have thoroughly enjoyed this. At least I can speak for myself. I've enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. Um, Well, it's been great talking to you guys. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.